Welcome to the ASC podcast, Cytopath Pod. Join special guests to highlight ASC activities in cytopathology education, advocacy, and research. This session, how to critique a paper, kickstarts the e-journal committee sessions. And this particular session is actually a collaboration of the e-journal and the product innovation committees. Now, this session is very near and dear to me, and I will tell you why. As you know, my dear colleague and mentor, Dr. Stefan Pambuchian, was the chair of the e-journal committee. And I had asked him to do this session, which he had gladly accepted. For those of you who had the pleasure of working and interacting with him, you know what an amazing individual Dr. Prambuchan was. Aside from being a diagnostic genius, he was a very generous human being, and he was very generous with his time, and he was an extraordinary educator. He read five to ten papers a day, and he liked paper papers, so he would print them out, and he would put them in his jacket, and then you know, go home in a very late hour and read all those papers at the end of the night. And he read the papers in a critical way. He would dig deep into the papers and understand the essence of them. He would say, you should be able to describe the aim, research methods and results with such clarity that your mother, father, spouse would understand. Uh, and journal clubs were fun with him. He would ask questions that would make me think or anybody think, this is brilliant. I didn't even think of this. Like, that's such a critical way of looking at it. So at Loyola, he started uh, doing a session on how to critique a paper, how to run a journal club, to set the tone of the journal clubs during the years. So for this reason, this session is dedicated to our own Dr. Stefan Prambucha. Now, um, I would also like to thank Dr. Rezai for stepping up and taking on as the chair of the e-journal committee. I also would like to thank our panelists for helping put this session together so quickly. And just as a little side note, as Dr. Prambuchan would say, Dr. Thrall was a former resident of Dr. Prambuchan at the University of Minnesota. And I must say, like, um, Dr. Prambuchan spoke very highly of you all the time and how eloquent you were with writing papers. Um, Dr. Weiss is our first Shark Tank winner, and she's the vice chair of the Product Innovation Committee, and Dr. Van der Laan, as you know, is the associate editor of JASC. Critically reading papers is not important to understand and further our work, but it also helps better our own writing skills. Furthermore, when we become reviewers and hence gatekeepers of information, this skill becomes invaluable as a reviewer. I hope you will all enjoy this session. There you have it. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Bracken, for the nice introduction to our first interactive e-journal series, actually, for 2021. Uh, I am very humbled to be the chair of this committee, and uh, I am very grateful for our gracious uh, panelists who accepted to um, work with us in a very short time, as you said, um, to put together this, um, this first um, e-journal series. 
there is no conflict of interest. As doctor, in the interest of time, I'm not going to uh, read every single item on the on the slides for for the introduction part. They have very impressive bios. Many of you probably know them already. Um, but in, in alphabetic orders, I just put the very few highlights of what they have done um, as as their impressive work and um, you know as as the service to the community of the scientific community, especially in the cytology community. Um, Prof. Dr. Thrall is a professor of pathology and genomic medicine in Houston Methodist Institute of Academic Medicine, and also a professor of clinical pathology and laboratory medicine at Wale Cornell College of Medicine. He is the cytopathology fellowship director and director of digital pathology at Houston Methodist Hospital. And he's member of many of the ASC committees, including the ASC Scientific Program Committee and chair of the ASC Small Biopsy Task Force. Uh, he's member of editorial boards of JASC and Archives of Pathology and co-editor of Diagnostic Pathology. He's author and co-author of 55 peer-reviewed journal articles. Um, our, I'm sorry. Our next uh, panelist, Dr. Vanderlaan, uh, he's an associate professor of pathology at Harvard Medical School and director of cytopathology and thoracic pathology at Beth Israel Medical Center. He is the associate editor of the JASC and member of editorial boards for five other pathology and medical journals. And he has published over 130 original research papers, review articles, editorials, and book chapters. Our next panelist is Dr. Vivian Weiss. Uh, she's an assistant professor of pathology and microbiology and immunology at Vanderbilt University. Uh, she is the vice chair of uh, the laboratory service committee of the American Thyroid Association, as well as the product innovation committee of the ASC. Uh, and uh, she is an editorial board member of the cancer cytopathology. And she also is a principal investigator of an independently funded basic science and translational research laboratory. She has published 33 original research papers, review articles, editorials, and book chapters. With that, I think um, you know how, uh, how grateful I am for them to be the panelists on this talk, because what we are going to do is talking about how to critiquing a paper. Before doing that, I think just to engage the audience and to know a little bit about the background of you and also to set the tone for the rest of the discussion, I would like for you to take the quick poll. Which of the following best describes you? And you have the choices of cytopathologists, pathologists, cytotechnologists, resident fellow, and cytotechnology students. I think we can click the poll. Okay, we have a nice mix and uh, about 30-30 cytopathologists, pathologists, cytotechnologists. We have lower numbers of residents, fellows, and cytotechnology students, but hopefully they get what they need to get out of it. The next question, uh, which of the following, oh, no, that's not the next question, sorry, you already did that. The next one, Somehow I'm not able to move. Okay. Do you have a journal club? Okay, journal club or a session that published papers or reviewed at your institution? Yes or no? And I. 
Okay. And I think we can see the poll. All right, 50-50, that's a very round um, numbers. All right, the next one we're going to talk about is going to be, um, okay, this actually is very important. So when reading an article, what section do you think is most likely to be skipped over or just only glanced at? Introduction, material and method, results or discussion. Okay, let's see. Okay, as expected, uh, materials and methods um, is two-thirds of the audience felt like that that would be where they kind of either skip or glance over. Very good. All right, so I guess now we can go back to where we want to take our, oh, sorry, that's not what we wanted to do. Okay. So before I open the discussion to our super panelists, I kind of um, would like to kind of go over for the critiquing of the paper. It would be great to have an idea how to go through the different sections of um, an, you know, an article when, when you're reviewing the article. So uh, let's see if we can start with, um, I believe what I had in mind, it was that to ask our panelists, and I'm going to start with uh, Dr. Weiss, Vivian. Uh, in your opinion, what makes a solid introduction? What is the purpose? And what are the things that should be a must-have elements of it? How long and how detailed should it be? Thank you. Great question. Um, I think the most important part of an introduction is to clearly and somewhat succinctly state the problem that your research is addressing. Um, it is really important for the reader to know exactly what the issue is and what the problem is upfront as soon as they start reading the um, the paper. And I like to say, and I think this is on the slide in front of you. I like to say that this is you know, a first impression of the paper. Um, so when you meet someone, you want to put a good first impression. Uh, when you start your introduction, you need to captivate your audience. You need to explain the problem and really get everyone who's reading it excited to continue even reading the materials and methods. And, and the key to that really is to make it interesting and engaging and to tell a story. And, and I typically start with what is the critical problem in your field that you are addressing? And then after that, I like to define the background that has led up to your research. So put it in the setting. What is going on in the research world um, up until your fantastic finding? Um, and, and then I think the other thing, which I sort of touched on before, is why is this important? So not only what problem are you addressing, but what is the relevance um, to the field? Why should people continue reading and continue caring about your project? If you write too long of an introduction, people get lost, right? If it's too short, maybe you don't convey everything you need to convey. Um, and, and so the sentences need to be clear and engaging and clearly outline the problem, the background, and why this is relevant. Very good. That was very nicely put. Um, now let's uh, turn to Mike, because the majority of our uh, re audience um, had uh, skipped over materials and methods. 
So um, it, it's kind of, we kind of thought that that would be the answer. It's probably the least intuitive section for many readers. Um, as a writer and as a reviewer, tell us about the importance of this section and what are the key elements to pay particular attention to? Okay, so uh, materials and methods, I can start out with just a, what I was told a long time ago, I think this is in a science college course, uh, even before medical school. The point of the materials and methods really is to make it so that if somebody else wanted to repeat what you did in their own institution or in their own lab, they would be able to do so just by copying what you've described in your materials and methods. That's the that's the basic idea behind it. And I think a lot of people, they, they, you know, they don't even have a basic idea of what's supposed to go in there. But once you understand that basic idea, that what you're trying to do is allow other people to follow in your footsteps and, and redo what you've done. And not that anyone really ever does that very often, but that's a theoretical idea at least, is that you're trying to give people enough information so they can really understand in detail what you've done and they could actually copy what you've done exactly if if they you know wanted to. Um, and really, if you have this concept in mind, it helps you to get to the main point of this, which as a practical matter, people won't actually try to re reproduce you entirely, but they do want to have that information so that they can compare what you've done with what other people have done um, and to compare what you have done with what they do in their own lab. Even if they're not doing a study, you know, if you're talking about a new immuno or if you're talking about a new um, diagnostic terminology system, you know, they like to say, well, you know, how does what they do in their lab compare to what I do in my lab? And can I take what they've done and expect to get similar results in my circumstances? Um, and it also is, is useful um, if you have all that detail. So that if somebody's doing some sort of a uh, a review of of different papers that maybe have different findings that seem on the surface similar, they can go into the materials and methods section and figure out, okay, well, why did these different authors in different institutions get different results? You know, is there you know is there a real problem here, or is it just that they were using different methods and maybe the results do make sense after all? So I think that these are the basic ideas you need to keep in mind when you're writing this and when you're reviewing or reading this, you should be looking to have something that has enough information so that you you feel like you really understand what the person did and how you could yourself apply what they've done or compare it to other papers that are similar. That's uh, very good. Go so, ahead. Sorry. so I, and you know the other things to you know the basic things to include then are you know the population you're you're studying the the laboratory methods, you know, what equipment you're using to do what you've done, uh, the statistics and the methods of statistics that you're using, and your some sort of statement about your IRB approval is usually in there as well. Mm -hmm. So those are the, the basic things to cover. Um, and and I think that, you know, it really, the materials and methods oftentimes is the hardest to write because you're supposed to refrain from editorializing. You're supposed to just describe things. And that's, again, where sometimes authors fall down because they feel like they are kind of unsure what to say. But if you just try to make it with the mindset that you're going to help someone else copy your study, that's that's the basic idea. Very good. That was very nicely put. Thank you very yeah, that, much. If you don't mind, I'll jump in here, get, sure. get a little, little discussion going yeah. here. Um, yeah, I think the, the materials and methods section is so important for all of those reasons that Mike just outlined. And um, uh, two things, you know, I'd like to, to kind of touch on. Um, uh, first off, you know, I, uh, you know, I had the pleasure of being involved in um, a CAP um, a guideline, you know, creation. And one of the things that major guidelines or um, uh, 
meta-analyses or reviews really rely on is being able to dive into the materials and methods to know exactly what was done. And it's really unfortunate that uh, so many papers were excluded from the systematic review from inclusion in these guideline statements because of the lack of any uh, details, uh, you know, adequate details in the materials and methods. And so um, it's, it's critically important to know what you did, how you did it, and how the results of the paper really are based on what was done. You know, as Mike said, you can have two, you know, similarly constructed studies that have very divergent results. And it doesn't mean that either one is wrong, but there might be, again, reasons in uh, you, you know, just in the in the way the, the 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 assays were technically performed, and you know, Vivian, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on again in the lab. You know, I remember as a grad student, you know, you 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 eagerly look for if you're going to set up a new assay, you're going to do something. It's that materials and methods that you want to be able to reproduce exactly, you know, what other labs did. Uh, yes, Paul, that's that's exactly right, and and I think Mike said this as well. You know. So often we'll read a paper, I had a grad student come to me the other day and say, hey, I wanna do this single cell sequencing on formalin fixed paraffin embedded tissue while retaining the architecture. And there's this paper that was just published and I'm gonna do it based on their methods. And you have to remind them, the methods aren't always written in such a way that the study can be reproduced. They usually just kind of summarize briefly the tools that they use in the equipment. And, and often they're not written in a way that that someone can come after and do the same study in exactly the same way. And that actually has caused a lot of issues in science. There's a lot of lack of rigor and reproducibility because of the lack of attention to the methods section. So, so I think we can all do each other a great service by clarifying those materials and methods so that someone isn't having to repeat all of that after you and reinvent the wheel after you. Another another kind of point uh, along those lines is uh, you know kind of putting on a you know associate editor editor hat um, uh, you know sure it would be great to think about every paper that we put out into the world you know somebody reads you know cover to cover you know every single word um, but that's just not the reality some people are looking for more some people are looking for less and so I want to really put in a plug now that so many journals are you know online and there are so many supplemental material options you know I think that. It's totally fine to trim down for the actual published paper your materials and methods to just the essentials so people have an idea of what you did. But then if you have a really comprehensive you know, materials and methods section online as a supplemental material, that's fantastic because people who are interested or who need to know that information can find it. Um, but then again, you're not blowing you know, 80% of the, you know, words allotted to your manuscript too, um, you know, describing any, every antibody clone, every incubation time, every, you know, um, your cell block method, you know, exactly how everything is done. Super important stuff, but hey, you know, my, my, my real uh, encouragement would be to have really utilize that supplemental online material um, that a lot of journals uh, have. Perfect. I think we did very good justice to the materials and methods because as, as, as we all saw and we expected, that was the area that needed a lot more clarification and discussion. So, Paul, don't put your hats down yet. As the associate editor, I would like for you to tell us um, what should be presented in the results section. Is there a most appropriate format for conveying the results? Oh boy, where to, where to begin? Um, um, uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna work backwards a little bit. Um, and again, this is something that just I'm, I'm really passionate about. So 
in the results section, as Mike really you know alluded to, you're really not editorializing yet. You're 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 presenting the results of the experiments of the study. Just here's the data, and you know we'll get into the statistical methods and and you know how the data is presented. But how the data is presented is incredibly important in my mind. Um, Honestly, nothing is more soul-crushing than getting a paper that has seven tables, no figures, no charts, seven <laughs> tables. And, and, and honestly, you know, tables are super important, and it's a very efficient way of presenting data and large amounts of data. But they're boring, um, and a table is not always the most effective use of um, or the best way to present that data. So really think about, you know, how can you present data? Is, uh, you know, is, is, a, is a pie chart really a good way to show a distribution? Mm -hmm. um, if you're looking at a, a, a distribution of data, you know, box and whisker plot or violin plots are super helpful, again, to get an understanding for that, that just a mean or a median wouldn't give you. Um, if you're looking at trends over time, you know, um, stacked bars uh, charts are in incredibly important. So, you know, this is something that I've really tried to do in my studies and something that I really do you know, try to encourage um, in papers that I review and, you know, for, you know, recommending, suggesting, uh, you know, acceptance in, in, in uh, journals is to, you know, have interesting, creative, you know, well thought out ways to present your data. Um, and, and as a, just a little uh, plug, um, I went to my library shelf. I don't know if, um, so Edward Tufte, I don't know. So um, there are these great uh, books. So the visual display of quantitative information, visual explanations, um, envisioning information, you know, there really is a science behind how data is presented. And, uh, you know, really it's an eye-opening way to, um, you know, to, to reevaluate why you, how you construct charts, what you put into charts, and what you want the reader to, to um, take from that. And, and so, so with that, you know, Vivian, Mike, any, any thoughts on, uh, you know, the results? Like, what are you looking for? What should be there? Um, and, you know, what's the best way to convey that information? I, I would second what you're saying that um, any articles that take off and get a lot of attention, they usually have at least one sort of killer graphic in them that people can put into a PowerPoint and quickly illustrate the main, the main thrust of the article and what the authors found. So I think that that, you know, I think I can't emphasize enough. I mean, I agree 100% with what you said that, you know, you, Spending more time thinking and less time writing is the is the best way to get this. You know, you want what you want is something succinct. Um, but in order to make something that's succinct and really gets across what you're trying to say and it really impresses people, you know, there's a lot of thought beforehand and then there's something you know very elegant in the execution. Um, and so you know, I think that that's really key for the maybe the results section more than any of the others uh, because um, I mean really the results are. are the real meat of the paper. I mean, people tend to focus on the discussion. Um, and I know I tend to do that too, because I like to wax eloquent, but um, I mean, really the results are what are what you're actually contributing to science. The discussion a lot of times kind of meanders off and may not, you know, of course you need it and it's important, but it's, but the results are what everything is ultimately based on. If I may just jump in, uh, Paul, there is a question that uh, is asked from you if you can share the, um, the, the books, like, um, you know, the titles of the books. We can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll either, um, if there's a lull in the conversation, I'll, I'll either uh, uh, throw them into the chat or afterwards, I'm sure we can um, uh, sure. You know, put it 
somewhere out there, but I will absolutely share these. And they, again, they, they, they're very eye-opening uh, to me. And so you, you all might find them useful as well. But yeah, absolutely. I will pass those along. Edward Tufte, T-U-F-T-E is the, is the last guy's last name. All right. Very good. Very good. And I would just, just mm -hmm. add on to that and emphasize, you know, the results and the figures that you present are the meat of your study. They really are the most important thing. And I think as a panel, we can't stress that enough. You need to present it in a digestible fashion. And seven tables is just not digestible. It needs to be something that the reader can look at and understand what you're doing and, and the results that you're providing with your study. And if you look at it and say, or show it to your mom or your friend or, you know, and say, hey, can you understand this? Because on first glance, it needs to be readable and understandable, even to people outside of your field. Very true, very true. So I'm going to ask one more question from Paul and everybody else, please jump in. Um, is there any golden rules of understanding the statistical data? And I, it would be something very brief that you can tell. You can even suggest some readings for that because I personally don't think it has been, at least not for me, part of the curriculum as I was, you know, um, being a resident in pathology and doing my fellowship and everything else. So I kind of struggled with those. And I, uh, I don't know if others uh, feel the same, but I think it would be a good way to just give a punchline for us and then um, point us to where we can get those information. Yeah, yeah, great. A another easy softball question. Thank you uh, for, for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, statistics. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, obviously you have to learn a lot on the job. And, um, you know, I, I'm very jealous of, uh, you know, my colleagues that have an MPH or who, who you know, have done, you know, a really in-depth biostats courses. So I guess, you know, it's a, it's a little glib, but I would say find a friend or find a, a, a collaborator or someone who's really good at stats and, um, you, know, you know, buy them beer, buy them, you know, chocolates, uh, and, and it, that will pay dividends a hundredfold. Um, uh, with that being said, um, again, I'm kind of working backwards. Um, a lot of institutions, a lot of um, hospitals, a lot of uh, uh, universities have uh, core facilities. And, you know, at, you know, at Harvard, there's a biostatistics, you know, core facility. So right. if you're doing something more than, uh, you know, simple T-tests, um, uh, Fisher exact test, um, chi-squared, um, you know, kappa core correlations, where you can do that in, you know, in Excel or on simple, uh, you know, uh, statistical programs, you might need to have uh, a, a consultation with uh, a statistician. Um, and in, in increasingly so on uh, journals, you know, one of the, the, the questions and one of the things that we have to consider is whether this paper warrants a statistical um, evaluation, you know, actually have a statistician, statistician go over, um, you know, the data set and the, the, the methods that were used uh, to uh, compare the statistics. Um, so as far as resources, that's a great question. And I, I do want to bring everyone's attention to a couple of things. I'm sure many in our audience knows about this. Um, so the first is in JAMA. Uh, so uh, in JAMA, over the last three years or so, they've had an excellent series. So every couple of weeks, they have another um, uh, editorial or review article on basically their guide to statistics in medicine uh, section. And I think that there's probably about 20 of them that have been published thus far. And it's really a great way to focus in on a certain, 
you know, population or, or statistical method um, that's the topic of each one of those papers. And so JAMA, um, the Guide to Statistics in Medicine. Um, and then again, from my, uh, from my wheelhouse, the Journal of Thoracic Oncology has also in 2020 um, instituted a, um, a similar series. And so statistics in oncology research. Um, and so uh, if you look, and I, I believe the New England Journal also has some of them as well. Obviously, these are usually more population-based um, studies, but you can get a lot of great information from the big journals because of a recognition that this is important. Um, so those are the two uh, things I would throw out there. But again, JAMA, uh, the, the JAMA series is something I would suggest to everyone. But yeah, Vivian, Mike, I don't know if you have any other um, uh, wisdom, um, if you are blessed with uh, statistical uh, brilliance, uh, or, or if you like me, you just find people to thrive and uh, bring in to your circle yeah. of research. We, we usually collaborate with a statistician, um, and, and I have a couple statisticians that are wonderful that we work with extensively. You know, if, if we're, we're doing a simple t-test or something, we certainly can do it. We actually even do some more complex statistics in my lab, but those are all at the guidance of a really strong statistical team because we do so much sequencing and computation. I am not going to be an expert in all of those statistical tests. So um, it's really great. And most institutions, as you said, Paul, have resources that you may not even know about. Like our biostats um, department actually has like sort of happy hours and like help hours where you can go. And there's like four statisticians there. You bring them the question that you're trying to address and this potential stats you may want to do. And they will tell you or give you advice and guidance. And often then that starts a collaboration. Very good. I guess I guess I would throw in, you know, we're talking a lot. We, we kind of spend a lot of the time talking about things from the perspective of someone writing or, or putting together a paper. Um, I would say it's from the perspective of someone reading a paper, um, you know, again, obviously you're not going to, unless you really, really care about the article, you're not going to pick it apart and try to do a statistical analysis yourself. But I think that there are some sort of thumbnail things that you can do to see whether, um, you know, what you're reading makes sense or not. And, you know, and to me, I think that, I do tend to look at, you know, what they do their analysis on, and I tend to look at what kind of, usually we're talking about p-values or something of that sort. I tend to look at, you know, how many how many things that they're reporting have a significant p-value, and, you know, how many things I would sort of expect, you know, based on the study they've done. You know, if I was doing this study, what would I be looking for? And what, one of the things I, I try to look for is whether what they're reporting and what has good p-values corresponds to kind of what I would expect or what I would be looking to generate if I had done a similar project. And so I think that, you know, that can give you a good idea. If it more or less is, seems like the results that they're getting make sense and they're getting good p-values on the things that you would be looking for yourself out of a similar study, then I think that, you know, you probably are dealing with a paper where, um, you know, they're getting robust results and, and the statistics are fairly straightforward. Uh, on the other hand, if you have a situation where the p-values are, you know, they're only reporting a few, or they're reporting things that seem sort of tangential, and they're, you know, and, they're, and they maybe are not reporting things that you would expect them to report. Then that makes me kind of wonder, and then you start scratching your head and thinking, you know, maybe this isn't as robust, and, and maybe the, you know, they did a whole lot of different analyses, and they're cherry picking the ones that have a a good p-value, but they're not really focusing on what should be the most important findings. And that, so that's a, something that you might question and say, well, maybe this study isn't as strong as it looks on first glance. So, you know, taking it from that perspective as a reader or reviewer, I think that those are some kind of just quick rules of thumb you can use 
to get an idea about whether the statistics seem, you know, to pass the smell test, so to speak, you know, just on a, on a quick first glance. Very good. Actually, that's very helpful. And thank you for the suggested readings that I think a lot of people would, would find that useful. I know I would. Uh, so now let's move into the discussion section, uh, which, again, at the end, uh, all of the parts that we talked about, they merge in to bring the points home and capture the essence of the paper in the discussion. So I will open the floor to you guys and let's see what, what you think is the best way to talk in the discussion, what, what would be the, what makes a great discussion portion of a paper? Well, I think we need a little Shark Tank jazz hands, you know, <laughs> like the introduction. You know, the yeah. discussion is the opportunity to actually then interpret the data, um, uh, speculate a little bit on what that means. Um, not overstate it, you know, but um, it, it, you have a little bit more freedom there. And then, you know, as Mike can, you know, wax and wane eloquently with his uh, beautiful English background and, you know, Vivian with the Shark Tank training, you know, this is, this is again, an opportunity to not lose the interest of the reader, but also to get your point across. So it's like, yeah, what do you want the reader to take away from your study? And the discussion really is where you can kind of hammer that home. So yeah, Vivian, I'll hand it off to you. What, what, what do you think about the discussion? Oh, I completely agree. This is where you wrap everything up and you say, these are the reasons why this work is great. These are some uh, future directions and, and a little bit of potential speculation. And then don't forget to put your limitations in there. I think you know your limitations best if you're writing this. And if you're reviewing, if the limitations aren't clearly spelled out, they should be, and you should ask for those. Um, because everyone needs to know that there are limitations of every study. And if we all as a group clearly state those every time, then, then that helps strengthen our research as a community. Right. I, I would agree with that. I think that um, one of the biggest mistakes that people tend to make in their discussion is that, and again, this makes sense. I mean, they've done a lot of work on this thing. You know, they've done all this work to do the research, get the IRB approval, actually write the paper for, you know, it's, Many hours, it's a labor of love. You know, it's almost like I think Guli said in our practice, it's like it looks like your child that you're delivering into the world. Um, and so, you know, people have a tendency to um, want to make it seem more grandiose than it is, you know, which is totally understandable. Um, and to some degree, you know, acceptable, just like we, you know, parents who brag about their children would kind of accept that, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, including the weaknesses and including things that, you know, you know, things that could be done better under different circumstances really helps. And it helps to ground you as an author and it helps to reassure the reader that you, you know, you are still kind of in touch with reality and you're not um, you're not saying things that are completely out of out of the realm of of what's reasonable and and, and you can actually draw credibly from the data that you're presenting. And so, you know, the biggest mistake people make is that they, they have very limited data and maybe they, the study is limited for good reasons. You know, they've done the best that they can, but then they try to make huge claims that, you know, they've revolutionized this or that field when it's weak data limited by, you know, for whatever reason. And really, you know, it's just making one small contribution that, yes, it may be a good contribution, something helpful, something that does push the field forward, but usually not to anywhere near the degree that they try to claim. And so, you know, as an author, when you claim too much, you actually turn readers off, you know, whereas if you're more modest and you admit the limitations, 
and you say, okay, I know that my study isn't perfect and these are the reasons why, that actually gives you more credibility and whatever you have really discovered and, and produced is more likely to actually be accepted and, and people are more likely to try to build on it in the future if they can trust you to you know, be more realistic about what you really have put out there. Um, so, you know, I think that as a reader too, uh, you know, you need to be always very cautious about, you know, in the abstract or in the discussion, when people are claiming that they've discovered something really revolutionary, you know, you, you always have to be, you know, sort of skeptical about that and, and take it with a grain of salt and, and really look carefully at what they've done and how what their data really supports before you, you know, start making big decisions or start, you know, doing a big research project of your own based on something that may not be as sturdy and, and reliable as what the author is presenting it as. Um, so that would be what I would add to that. Very good. That's perfect. Um, so now I guess we can start the fun because the whole point of the discussion was the, how to critique a paper. I think it, it has been said in so many different ways during our discussions up to now, but I'm just going to make it a little mix and match. So I'm going to start with Vivian. So what makes a good reviewer? So in your role as the PI of an independently funded lab, and among many other roles that you have, you may be able to share with us some unique views that you would have as a critical reviewer of the literature and also as being reviewed in the work that you're doing. So if you can share with us, that would be great. Awesome. Um, yes, I think um, reviewers are, are essential to our field. I think they hold us accountable, um, and I think they also strengthen the work that we do. And so um, as a reviewer of a paper, my job is to make sure that the science is solid and that the conclusions that are drawn are appropriate. Um, and, and as a researcher, um, my job is to do the same, right? To make sure my science is solid and my conclusions are appropriate. And on the research side, when I get a critique, um, the most helpful thing for me is to see a critical review and ways to strengthen. Um, and so then when I review papers, I try to give back the same thing, right? Just saying, well, this study isn't novel. That's not a helpful review, right? That doesn't help strengthen the field. It's better to give suggestions as to how to present the science so that we highlight the novelty of it. Or what other population can you bring into your study or what else can you do to make it novel, right? So not only do you provide a critique, but you also provide recommendations to strengthen the work. Um, and, and that's really essential. This is what I do. I mean, I research for most of my time, right? So when I present a manuscript, it is, as has already been mentioned, like the birth of a child, right? It's something we've worked on for so long. And so we really want the reviewers to give it that sort of respect and, and really help um, strengthen it to the best of their ability. As Paul mentioned before, getting a statistical review can be very, very helpful. Um, and we have had reviewers recommend that, and it can be really amazingly insightful, even when we have statisticians already that are collaborating with us. So, so I guess m my most important point is that you really should give a very critical review, but also suggestions for strengthening the work. Perfect. That that sounds very right. I mean, that's perfectly said. Um, 
So now let's talk to Mike. So with your extensive involvement in many scientific and educational committees in ASC and other professional organization, um, I'm gonna ask a question that is kind of somewhat obvious, but I think it's good to hear it uh, and to decipher it. So why do we review papers? So I'm sure you have plenty of reasons and you can share that with us beyond what normally we say, okay, we'll review papers for this, but okay. Yeah, I. You know, I, I tend to be one of the people who does the, the most reviews for some of the articles that I do, or for some of the journals that I do review articles for. Um, I guess to me, you know, it is one of those things that's is sort of a academic grunt work where you don't get a lot of credit for it. <laughs> um, and, and as Vivian really eloquently said, you know, if you're do, doing a good job as a reviewer, you're actually putting a lot of work in it to try to make the paper better, even though your name will never be on that. Um, but a good reviewer can really, you know, help the author to achieve more success by pointing out flaws or by pointing out ways that they could make their their article more appealing and, you know, more impactful for readers. So why do I do it? Well, you know, like a lot of things in academia, I, you know, I, I personally, I do find it to be somewhat gratifying to, you know, contribute something and, and help people to make their papers better and help journals to produce a better product that, you know, is more educational and has a wider reach. So, you know, even though I don't, you know, I don't get a lot of personal credit, I, you know, I, I, I feel a credit internally, I guess, when I do it. I, and I'll, and also to be honest, you know, a lot of it is, you know, somebody asked me a favor. So I say, okay. <laughs> so um, it's, a, it's a mix of just, you know, trying to help, help sure. people out and, and trying to, trying to help out the people you don't know, the people who are writing the article too, and trying to help out the readers so that when the article gets published, you know, the readers have a more enjoyable experience as well. So, uh, you know, these are all the reasons why I, I find it gratifying. Now, why does it have to be done? You know, pulling a step back, you know, I think we, you know, Vivian already talked about this, that, you know, the review does right. strengthen the article and it should, you know, sometimes you get reviews back saying, oh, this article is fine the way it is. And that's actually, I kind of feel insulted when it's nice that they give it a pass, but it's actually kind of insulting and that they didn't put any effort into trying to improve it at all. Um, you know, so, you know, the reason we do it is to, first of all, make sure that it actually is a credible work that, you know, is right. not obviously wrong. Now, most of the time, we're not going to do a super deep analysis and actually go inspect their lab and see what they really did and do all that. But, you know, it, we, we are there to make sure that it is a, at least a, a credible, reasonable result. Um, and we also are there to make sure that they are producing something that will be a valuable, you know, to the community that, that they're producing it for. And so, you know, it's not just a matter of, you know, I, sometimes it turns into kind of a game of just filling pages in journals, unfortunately, because um, there are a lot of journals out there and they all need content. But, you know, we are there. The, the real purpose ultimately is to make sure that what goes into journals is deserving of being there and deserving of being read. And if people do read it and take it seriously and, and do what the articles suggest they could do, that, you know, it will actually make things better and not worse. So, you know, that is ultimately the responsibility when you're reviewing a paper to try to make right. sure that this article is going to make the world a better place. <laughs> very good. Boil it down. Very noble cause. Very noble. <laughs> very good. So now let's go to Paul. So we talked about the do's of the critiquing of the paper and reviewing a paper. So as the associate editor of JAS, among many other editorial roles, and as well as many research and educational endeavors, uh, you are in a great position to share with us the don'ts of when reviewing a paper? 
Wow. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I will answer that question. I'll get to it. And, and I, I think that Vivian sure. and Michael might also have some really um, sure. useful thoughts there as well. But I'm going to take this opportunity, you know, um, to, to maybe pull back the curtain a little bit for the ASC community, um, you know, especially with JASC, you know, as an associate editor. Um, but basically the, the way that we do things at JASC is very similar to most of the other, uh, you know, editorial boards in, that I'm on. And I think this might actually help certainly the, you know, the trainees, but also, you know, more junior uh, set of pathologists and pathologists to understand the process, like what goes into you know, getting, you know, how does a bill become a law? How does your manuscript become right. a PDF in JASC? Um, and so, you know, when you submit, when you submit your work uh, to JASC, we'll use as an example. Um, so at JASC first goes to the editor-in-chief. Um, so she looks at that manuscript and if it is terrible, not a good fit, and not even worthy of review, she might do a desk uh, reject right there and just and honestly, not waste everyone's time because it, a lot of time and effort goes into reviewing these manuscripts. So that's the first kind of like uh, checkpoint. If it looks like it's a, a decent manuscript, then what she does is she assigns it to one of the associate editors. Um, so either myself or um, uh, or uh, uh, Martha Pittman at MGH or um, uh, Leroy Pantanowitz at U of M are the three associate editors for JASC, and it's based on the, the topic of the paper, the expertise, how many, you know, uh, manuscripts we have in the queue. And so once the associate editor gets that paper, what we do is, you know, I read it, I read it thoroughly. Um, again, if, if in my opinion, it's, it, there's just no value, it's a really terrible manuscript, it's not ready for review, you know, I'll do a desk reject as well. Again, not to waste the author's time because nothing is worse than having your paper languish in review for three months, right? And, and you're wondering what's going on. Whereas if you know it's gonna be a reject, let's get it over with so we can either choose a different journal or fix it. Um, so then after I read the paper, it's, it's, it's something that needs to be reviewed. Um, then, the, the, then I have to choose reviewers. So I have to send out invitations to um, uh, people in the field, experts on the topic that the paper is about, um, people who have published about it before, um, people who are very good reviewers. Um, you know, so there's a, a large a database that we can search to look and find out who might be the most appropriate reviewer. And so we send that invitation out, an invite, will you review this manuscript? And uh, as, as Mike said, you know, it is a favor, you know, and and it is a lot of work. Every time I get a review request, you know, I, I take it seriously. Um, I don't want to send back just a one-liner. We'll talk about that at the end, but it's going to, you're going to take, you know, half an hour at least, if not an hour or two, you know, to give a really in-depth review. So then we usually send that out, and most papers have two reviewers at least, um, uh, sometimes more if when we get the reviews back, if they're conflicting, uh, if, if one says yes, one says no, if they're conflicting, or if it's a really hot topic or an important paper, we might want a number of opinions on that. And so we send them out. Uh, a reviewer will accept it. They'll review the paper. Usually we, we, we ask the review to be sent back in about um, uh, 14, 15 days, you know, so a relatively mm -hmm. rapid turnaround time, understanding, again, that you as the author want to get that information back as quickly as possible. Right. So after the reviews come back, then me as the assigned associate editor, I read the review, the comments to the authors. I read the comments to the editor. Um, and then I 
make the decision. It, you know, uh, is it an accept? Is it uh, 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 revised with minor revisions? Is it a major revisions? And if they're done, we'll reconsider the paper or is it a flat out reject? And so we try to put it in a box and again, take all of that information that we have been given. And so the reviews are incredibly important and incredibly helpful because you want a lot of viewpoints on that paper. Oftentimes the editor themselves will also add um, uh, other comments or things that the author should address. And then that goes back to the editor in chief. Um, she, Dina Modi, uh, then sends out the, the letter, um, either of acceptance or revisions are needed, um, goes back to the authors. And then if, if uh, revisions are needed, then it comes back to us and we do that process again until we get to accept. So it really is an iterative process. It's an in-depth process. And a lot of work goes into it. And as Vivian and Michael both said, a good review and what was really helpful as to the editor are frank comments. What are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? What needs to be addressed? And then to the authors, how can you improve that study? You know, how, and what, yeah, I think that we've all danced around this. We all want to make papers better. We want good things to be you know, put out into the world. And so this is something in academics that we do. Every paper that I review, I learn a little something from, and you get better at writing papers from reviewing. So that's something that you can benefit from. But mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, you know, we really do want to, in JASC, in every you know, a, a journal that I'm associated with, the review process is, in, is it ha, always strengthens a paper. And personally, even though it can be soul crushing to get that rejection or that really harsh, um, or as Gooey's, uh, you know, mentioned in the chat, the, uh, the the dreaded reviewer number two, you know, comments. <laughs> every time the the paper always comes back better, um, uh, even if you can't see it in your own paper after the first one. So, so I, I spoke a lot. Let, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, toss it to Vivian, Mike. Uh, any other thoughts about that, or you know, don'ts of what uh, you know what not to do in a review? I think, you know, a good example of the importance of the review process has been actually, you know, in the last year during the pandemic and all the research that has come out about COVID-19. We have seen major journals publish really important works on COVID-19, some of which had to be, you know, retracted and withdrawn and the results to be, were found to be invalid. And actually at Vanderbilt, we did a very in-depth journal club um, for some of the graduate students that I work with, looking at some of those articles that were retracted and that were found to be um, inappropriate in a number of different ways, right? And, and so that really highlights the importance of reviewers, particularly with really novel cutting edge research that's done quickly. Right. I mean, we all know that there's exciting, exciting, groundbreaking research that's done that is pushed through at, at an important but fast pace. And, and so that really highlights the importance of the reviewers to hold people accountable, to look carefully at the statistics, to get that statistical review if it's needed and, and to really think critically, not just write the one line. This is great. So and so is a great researcher. We know them. We're going to say this is really great but critically, critically spend the time to review the article. Very good. Anything, Mike? I would throw in one last quick thing. Um, one thing that I always do when I'm writing a review is that uh, I don't push the send button right away. <laughs> I, I I let it sit at least for half an hour, an hour, go do something else, check my emails or sign out a few cases or something, and then come back to it and read it again, 
make sure that you know there isn't anything in there that that seems unduly harsh or might be interpreted as as being overly negative um you know so that's just one you know to try to make sure you know because it is tough as a reviewer you're you're giving feedback and usually most of the feedback is negative um and some of the papers just aren't very good and you, you do sometimes get frustrated in the process of reviewing as you see so many obvious flaws that you feel like you shouldn't have to point out to them um and so sometimes you as a reviewer do sometimes maybe get overly harsh and i know i am guilty of that sometimes so i always try to do a harsh check before i push the send button and try to mellow it out a little bit so that it doesn't come across too harsh that's something i've learned so i would give that advice to anyone who's thinking about doing reviews yeah, and Katie, uh, to, so that I'm, I, I didn't completely ignore your, your initial question. So no, uh, two don'ts. So two true. don'ts as reviewers. And number one is exactly as what Mike said. You know, don't be overly harsh or cruel or mean or vindictive. <laughs> you know, even if it is a terrible paper, there is some good in there, and 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 you know, a lot of hard work and blood, sweat, and tears went into that paper. And so, constructive criticism. How can we make this better? Even if it's there's no way that this is ever going to get into your journal. How can you help the authors so that they can reframe it? They can find a better journal. They can actually make it a better study elsewhere. So, so number one, don't be mean, you know, don't, don't be cruel, you know, make the world a better place. Haha. Really? All that. Um, second thing is, you know, don't, and this is something that it, it, it can be very difficult. And for myself as well, um, and, you know, talking about how to present the data and the, 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 you know, the, the, the tables versus graphs and all of that. I have to find myself sometimes teasing apart what changes need to be done to the manuscript or the the way the data is presented, et cetera, versus how I would do it, you know, and just because it's not the way that I would do it doesn't mean it's wrong or that other readers might find it fine. And so I, I find that balance between sometimes I'll offer suggestions like the authors could consider doing xyz or they could consider reframing or you know do it make it you know reframing the study this way that's not like an absolute they must or they must do this um and and, and some so some of those comments are take it or leave it comments and i think those are helpful to the authors um but just because you really firmly believe there should not be seven tables in every single paper <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean that a paper is not good if there is seven Boring. table <laughs> very good very good thank you so much for giving the answer to the questions um i think at this point um we can have a qa session uh and i'm going to ask dr barkan if she can actually because i'm having technical difficulties today now i can't even scroll through the questions and um so if i can have a phone a friend to have help with that that would be great Anytime you can phone a friend. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Uh, let me ask one of my own questions for you guys. Um, do you use reference managers when you're writing papers? And if so, which one do you like using? Bob <laughs> laughing. Well, I'm going to jump in here because I'm going to I'm going to out myself just as a total luddite. Um, so I do not, I do everything by hand. I don't use any reference managers, no paper I've ever written have I yeah. used you know, RefWorks or EndNote or anything like that. And perhaps it was because, so back when I was a grad student, my, my PI, when she was writing her, um, uh, my co-PI, when she was writing her dissertation, um, EndNote crashed. And so she was like, I'm never doing that. And so I learned just to do everything by hand. And 
And honestly, I've got a great system and people look at me crazy. I see Vivian's eyes are wide. Like, how could you not use EndNote? <laughs> but you know, I, it, it forces me to have everything in my head. And I've got this great system where I write the paper, you know, I do the revisions, you know, other people will look at it. And then it takes me about 15 minutes at the very end, right before I'm ready to submit to change all of those kind of parentheses, you know, uh, paper and all that into the ordered thing at the end. And I, so that works with me. I'm a terrible Luddite. I still, you know, uh, pen and paper, you know, in my paper, in my pockets. Um, if I still could have a razor, um, you know, cell phone and not a smartphone, I would. Um, but so that's what I do. But now let's see what actual real, you know, scientists and pathologists do. <laughs> well, I think, I think actually that that's really great. I, full disclosure, I use EndNote and I don't know what I would do without it. Okay. I, I could not do what Paul does, but. It, it actually is a is a really smart idea, and and one reason is because as you put references in and stuff, and then you get the numbers and it formats them for you at the bottom. It's very easy to put in the wrong reference. It's really easy as it reformats and renumbers the whole thing as you edit and delete for the wrong references to get in there. You hope it's doing it correctly, right? I rely on it tremendously, but it, if you don't do them by hand, it's important when you're all done to go back one by one and check all those references. And Paul just does it automatically because he waits to the end and formats them beautifully. But but even if you use a reference manager, that's a critical step because readers will go to those references. They wanna learn more about that topic or they wanna see that data. And so you, you're doing them a disservice if you haven't checked those references. Mike, yeah. how about you? I was going to say the same. I use EndNote, but it's flawed, and it has to be carefully checked. Um, and I see that's actually one of the pet peeves I have reviewing papers or even reading papers that are published is that so often there's obvious errors in, in the way the references are presented. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I understand why. Oftentimes it's very obvious that it just goes back to the algorithm that EndNote uses that's screwed up in some way. Um, but, you know, it just shows, I mean, these authors, they put – they put so much effort into this, you know, and then they don't follow through on, the, you know, just the basic double checks at the end. And it makes you wonder, you know, how serious they really are about about this, you know. So, you know, and, and as has been said, you know, you really want those references to be correct because oftentimes that's what people want from your paper as much as the content of your paper is all the references you already found so that they can learn more about the topic quickly without having to do their own search. Um, so the references are really important. And, you know, not just making sure that you're thorough, but also making sure that they're accurate and that people can actually follow them and find the articles correctly. Yeah, yeah. totally second that. I, I am a believer of EndNote, too. Without it, I don't know what I would do because I am not very good typing, Paul, like you, so that would be an issue for me. Um, and as a reviewer, when I look up, you know, papers, I do kind of spot check some of the um, references just to make sure it's in the same ballpark, like if it's about urine, you know, there's no mesothelioma thing in there by mistake that got in. Uh, but I'm, I'm admittedly, I don't check every single thing when I'm just reviewing a paper. But when you're sending it, I think that's a good idea. Uh, now, here's a question from one of our audience members. And they say, is there a software that you recommend for data presentation? I suppose other than Excel tables or graphs or... I don't know. Is there anything else? Um, you know, there's one that I just, and I may be behind the curve here. Maybe people know about this and have known for a while. But there's a software called BioRender, 
which allows you to put together your own like diagrams. It's not going to analyze the data for you. But if you need like an explanatory figure on how something works or maybe a figure even for the supplement as Paul suggested to detail your methods, um, it has beautiful, beautiful already pre-done graphics that you just, I mean, I'm not like super computer savvy, but I can very easily use BioRender to make some graphics. So that's a new one that I wasn't familiar with until recently. Hmm, good to know. Right. Any other programs that you know, guys know or like or recommend? Uh, I can, I can uh, BioRender is awesome. You know, again, if you're making little, uh, you, you know, cell pictures or, you know, mechanisms, it's, it, that's really useful. Um, you know, personally, I, 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 I use mainly, um, you know, Excel and PowerPoint. And I think that in, in newer iterations, um, just the functionality and the aesthetics have really taken a, a notch off. And so there's a lot in there with the basic programs of PowerPoint and Excel that you can make some beautiful uh, you know, charts, graphs, uh, et cetera. Um, it's always good. Just again, a little editorial note. You don't always have to use the default colors. You know, the, 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 the green, red, purple, like everyone knows what, what, uh, what the PowerPoint will, uh, automatically spit out. Um, and there's also plugins. You can buy plugins for Excel and PowerPoint for pure graphics. Um, um, and then there are other statistical programs that have, you know, a company graphic programs as well. Um, and, and then once again, you know, I have a lot of collaborators uh, with MPHs um, uh, and other researchers that have other either homegrown or, or other programs as well. And so great question. Um, and so, uh, yeah, yeah. But but again, personally for me, uh, Excel and PowerPoint get, can get you 80 percent of the way there. Good. OK. And this is probably as good as time as any to remind everyone that actually a picture is worth a thousand words instead of having lots of pros and tables. If you have one beautiful picture, then that, you know, conveys the message and people understand it so much easier. Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, let's see. There is a question, and let me see if I can rephrase the question, um, in terms of statistics and the use of statistics. And this is probably a... a, a an area that majority of us of us have issues because none of us really have are statistically based but when do you decide to write things in a descriptive manner or use statistics mm. and what is the approach to decide uh, descriptive versus um, actual statistics analyzed in data in the papers I, I guess I'm not entirely sure what I, I do. They mean like in a morphology study, uh, describing I'm, I'm, whether. I'm assuming that this is more of a morphology study. Right, like right. So you know whether you should actually do some kind of a statistical analysis of what different pathologists thought in in terms of the different morphological aspects, or whether it's okay to just give a description of, of what different people saw. Is that kind of what the question is getting at? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand the question myself, but I yeah. think what it is is that, say, you're looking at melanomas in, say, right. FinTech. Yeah. And do they have intranuclear inclusions? Well, yeah, 200 cases, maybe so many X of them had the intranuclear right. inclusion. And does it mean, do you do a statistics based on that? And this is this is a tough issue because again, right. I don't think many of us uh, during residency have a statistics training. And um, you know, those of you who are lucky to have a statistician on board on staff, that is great to go to. <laughs> Some of us <laughs> don't have that. And then 
what do you uh, do in situations like that? I think that's the issue. And I kind of wish sometimes the journals actually kind of provided help in that, where you could say, I have this paper I wrote this much, but I need help. What do I need? Yeah, I, I, so I can jump in there a little bit. Um, um, unless if you're writing an editorial um, or maybe a review article, if there are no statistics in your paper, it's probably not going to get accepted. You, you really, if yeah. you're making some comparison, if you're comparing means, if you are, um, you, you know, if you want to say, you know, 60% of uh, AUS uh, FNAs have uh, grooves or, or something like that. Well, what are you comparing it to? And if you're in, in, a, in a percentage, a number in isolation is, is not very useful. So you really do need some statistics. And again, very simple ones like a chi-square or, uh, you know, a, a t-test, you know, a student's t-test just to compare means if you're having a control group and a, in a, an experimental group, you, you, you do need to have some statistics. And yeah, some papers come through where, again, they're, they're describing 80% of this group had XYZ and only 20%. And it seems like, wow, that's pretty far apart. And maybe that is useful, useful diagnostically, but you still need statistics. And even if it's a small group, um, you, you know, you, you do have to have some statistics is, is kind of the, the take home point I'll say there. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, you know, it's sort of like the, the difference between a case report and a, and, and a study, you know, if it, once you get past two or three, then it becomes a study and not just a case report anymore. And so once you, once you're trying to publish something as a study, you do need some statistics. And, and for the most part, in a lot of these, you know, I think people get intimidated because they see, oh, there's so many things I could do statistics on and it's so difficult. But actually, once you'd figure out the first one, a lot of times most of the others, you could just plug the same formula again. So it's really not as intimidating as it seems. And, and, um, you know, that's, that's been my experience working on these kinds of papers. I get intimidated thinking, oh boy, I have to calculate 50 different p values. But, you know, actually, after I get the first couple done and I feel confident what I'm doing for this particular study, then the rest is kind of roll off and it's not a big deal. So. Agreed. Agreed. And even the most qualitative studies could actually use some statistics which kind of give it power and, you know, make it more understandable and put things into perspective. Um, here's another question from one of our participants, and they say, um, okay, you talked about tables and pie charts for presenting results. What other ways do you suggest results should be presented? Um, yeah, yeah, great question. Um, sometimes, sometimes text is good. You know, if you have... <laughs> You don't need to create a table if in your table you're just listing three bullet points or you're just having, you know, or if in your table you only have one column. You know, tables are useful if you have, again, multiple columns and whatnot. But sometimes if it's just short or if you're only talking about five different things, maybe it's better just in your results to say, you know, uh, you know, condition one, you know, X percent, five, you know, condition two, condition three, condition four, and not create a table. So I'm going to put, a, again, a uh, text, you know, just, just text is, is, is very appropriate. Um, and then, yeah, then just the whole, just, you know, there's so many different charts and ways to visualize data. It's, it's, it's exciting to when you just, okay. So, so to kind of geek out here when you do stumble across a new way of presenting data, a new chart, <laughs> something that you haven't used before, like that, that gets me really excited and I just can't wait to, 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 put something like that out into the world. Um, and, and when you have that perfect marriage of, of, of a, a unique, 
you know, new chart or way of, of visualizing the data with a, a data set. As, as Mike said, then you have your killer figure that is going to be, you know, people on the Twitter machine at, at conferences will be taking, you know, pictures, uh, you know, during plenary <laughs> sessions and whatnot of your figure. And so, and then it got retweeted and whatnot um, um, on social media. <laughs> Again, Maybe. what I hear. But but yeah yeah I, so so that's what I have I don't know Mike uh, Vivian any any other thoughts that are more intelligent than what I just babbled on about that was very intelligent Paul <laughs> I think bar charts are overused in science in general um, bar charts are an easy go to and I use them <laughs> definitely but if you've got six bar charts in there maybe you should start thinking about another way to show the data. Um, because just like tables, you can get lost in, in bar charts. That is true. Um, I, Paul, that's interesting. You've made me think uh, the first time I learned about funnel plots was from uh, Dr. Pambucha, and he taught me how to do that. And it was brilliant. I'm like, oh, this is such an interesting way. I've never seen it in any of the pathology articles before. And he just quickly pulled it to get, put it together, and I'm like, oh, this is great. So I share your enthusiasm with these new ways of showing things. Yeah. Um, let's see. There's another question here, and that's a very good question, and more on the kind of the editorial part, I would say. How much grammatical editing is the responsibility of the journal, like the words, spelling, phrases? If language is compromised but the work is good, how do you handle it? Sometimes you get these reports from reviewer two, typically, who go over the <laughs> entire uh, manuscript and point out your spelling mistakes, which you shouldn't have done in the first place, but it's there. Is this what we should be doing as a reviewer? Uh, sure, uh, I, I can I can mention that. Um, it's 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 always helpful um, if you know when those really you know fastidious reviewers have you know the major comments and then the minor comments and the minor comments is like you know line thirty eight you missed a period, line 14, this should be this word, not this word, you know, all of those errors. Um, I don't think that, again, personally, I, it's great if reviewers want to do that. I don't think that that's specifically the job of the reviewer. I think that just pointing out there are a number of typos and spelling errors or the, the English language is a bit rough. It needs to be, you know, fixed for a, you know, major revisions or minor revisions. Um, uh, so that's one thing. Number two, one, a pa when a paper is accepted, there is uh, on the journal and by the um, uh, the publisher itself, there is a round of some smoothing over and some cleaning up of the language of some typos before the proofs are sent out to the author. And then the authors will re review the proofs just to make sure everything is okay. Um, and my third point is that at the end of the day, really the responsibility lies with the authors. It's very embarrassing to put a, pub, a paper out into the world with spelling errors or with numerical errors in, you know, in, in one of your tables or if something is wrong. That reflects poorly on you as a scientist, as a researcher, as an academic, academic mission. So, um, yeah, so, so there are some checkpoints along the way from the journal's perspective, but the onus ultimately relies on the authors. And as a reviewer, is it okay to say maybe an English review um, is warranted in a kind and gentle way, not in a mean kind of way, correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There, there are any number of papers that the main problem is just that it's not very well written. And it's not, you know, somebody who, English is not their first language and they didn't translate it well. 
-hmm. you know, and, 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 and it just makes sense as professional services that are easy to access that people can send these things to help them to make the English better. So, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with, as you say, gently suggesting, Mm -hmm. Um, and in some extreme cases, even requiring that they do something like that. Yes, yes. And I think I could say this as a person whose first language is not English. It is nicely to to put it nicely, like you know, an, you know, English language review is a good idea. But you shouldn't also be insulting to the author by saying, or their first language wasn't English, or something like that. That is not a kind and gentle and appropriate way of doing that. Um, and I'll give you. As Paul said, we should definitely be kind. And yes. I think Mike mentioned this as well. You know, it's really easy to be overly critical. You're having a long day, you're reading quickly, you're frustrated, you're trying to get it submitted, and, mm -hmm. and you just spout out in text what you were thinking about the article. And, and as Mike mentioned, reading over and making sure that you're really being thoughtful and kind with your wording is so important. And so, so with that, I'm, I'm, I'll throw out a little, um, just a little anecdote. Um, so um, <laughs> as a graduate student, my first scientific paper, uh, I, I still have, well, I still have this nightmare, but I remember, you know, it, I worked on this um, adoptive transfer model of uh, NKT cells looking at atherosclerosis and lipid metabolism, two years of work, you know, submitted it to the American Journal of Pathology. Um, so excited, so excited got the reviews back and they were terrible. It was a flat out reject and it was just brutal. And I remember just feeling absolutely crushed. Um, and, and, and like, I, I was, I was thinking, no, what's the point of this? You know, why are people so mean? Uh, why, you know, I work so hard on this, but then, you know, kind of as, as, as how do you deal with So why do I say all this? Number one, to, to show that, you know, we're all human and, you know, we all get papers rejected and, when you get the harsh review or the, the critical review, um, how do I deal with that? So what I do is I read it and then I let it set. I don't react. I don't shoot out an angry email. I don't um, you know do anything. I let it sit for a day. I go back to it with a little bit more of a level head. And it's like, all right, there really are some pretty good points that the reviewers brought up. Or man, I really should do these experiments. And oh, I didn't think about that. Let me do that. And so Again, the whole goal of the peer review process is to make the paper better. Um, sometimes you run into, again, Gulies, you know, the evil reviewer number two. And so sometimes you just have to cut bait with that journal and maybe try another journal and try another reviewer. But in general, you know, reviewers do help. You can work the system. You can resubmit. You can show that you're making those changes. And then um, even with that paper, with a flat-out reject, it was accepted eventually. And so there is a happy ending at the end of that story. Oh, that's uh, nice. With small little, you know, graduate student Paul, you know, crying in the corner that his first paper was just everybody. <laughs> yeah, I would say that, too. The one thing that often as reviewers we tend to forget is that a lot of these things, the, the first person who reads it and the person who really cares is a trainee or a student. Who doesn't have experience with these things and they mm -hmm. and they often are very fragile actually um, so that's another reason to try your best to you know be level-headed and not not be too harsh because yeah I mean you, you're thinking oh you're sending this to some you know 50 year old guy who's already hit, written 100 papers but that you know that may be true of the senior author but the person who really cares the trainee this may be the first paper they've ever written and you should try to keep that in mind I love that Empathy skills as a reviewer. <laughs> you should write on that. I love this. This is so nice. Um, 
Well, you guys, uh, there are some more questions, but it's kind of the top of the hour. Um, I, I want to slowly kind of wrap this up. Um, so one of the things, and I'll tell you what I think, and um, then maybe, you know, you let me know if there's any last words. But when I'm um, sort of reviewing a paper or, you know, presenting at a journal club, one of the things I think to myself is, you know, if I were to do this study myself, how would I change it? How would I have designed it, you know, barring any time or, of course, you know, monetary concerns and whatnot? Um, and did they really answer the question that they set out for? So to me, that's one of the important things when you're critiquing a paper. How about you guys? Final points from you guys. What do you think um, if you want to um, leave our participants with one or two thoughts? What do you think? Well, I guess I, I can go first. I, you know, I think that, uh, as you said, empathy, uh, the, my my two key takeaway points from this kind of have to do with that. So the one thing to keep in mind with any article when you're writing it or reading it is that there's a huge sort of disconnect between the authors who have put a lot of work into it and who are very intimately familiar with what they're doing and who care a lot about what they're doing, presumably, versus the the readers who, for the most part, probably care a lot less, know a lot less, and put a lot less effort into reading. And so that you have to bridge that disconnect with, with empathy on both sides. And, you know, so when you're an author, you need to pull back a little bit and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, how can I make this something that somebody who cares about this a lot less than me will still get excited about and think this is worthwhile and go all the way through to the end and, and read all of this and try to understand it. So you need to, you need to, can't assume that everybody who might read your article cares about it or knows as much about it as you do. You need to write it with that perspective. Um, on the other hand, as a reader, you know, you you do need to, um, and we talked about this several times you, as from the perspective of a reviewer, but just as a reader as well, you, you need to keep in mind that this is somebody's baby. And, you know, even though maybe there are some flaws and, some, and it's not the way you would have done it, as has been mentioned, there's still usually is something worthwhile in there. And if you're reading it at all, it's probably because it has something to do with the topic that's of concern or interest or value to you. And so it, pretty much anything that gets published by a reputable journal, it, it's going to have something in there that's valuable and useful. So you should, you know, it, it does take some work sometimes as a reader, maybe more than might ideally be the case, but there's usually some kind of nuggets of value you can find in there. And, and it does make sense to maybe put a little bit more effort into some of these things and not just skim it quickly and, and give up on it too quickly. So, um, but the other thing on the other hand is you need to be skeptical as a reader as well, because as I talked about before too, the authors pretty much always overstate the significance or the uh, definitiveness of what they found. So you do need to also maintain your skepticism and and say, well, does the data really support what they're what they're claiming in the conclusions? And a lot of times, it only half supports it. So you have to kind of keep all of that in mind. And like like Uli said, having the empathy skills to understand the perspective of other people is key to you know keeping all of the things in perspective and and getting the most out of what you're doing. Very good. Actually, we had some talking uh, take-home points by the panelists that um, they put together very nicely. If Joanne can put the presentation on, because, again, somehow I'm not connected to anything right now. I'll just see you guys and hear, which is great. But um, I guess I don't know. Well, I, I didn't mind. I just, I just did my yeah. Oh, here it is. Yes, okay. you kind of did. Oh, well, I didn't mind verbally, but yeah. we can go. Yes. Okay. So I mm -hmm. guess this is Vivian. So yeah, this, these are mine. Um, 
you know, I think this focuses on the introduction, but just as a whole, um, tell a really good story. The introduction is your first impression. Lay out your points nicely. Uh, the rest of it should be, you know, how you're telling your story and then how you wrap up your story at the end. And so if you follow that Shark Tank model of really telling a good story, um, uh, you're, you're going to get more readers and you're going to advance the field. Very good. Uh, Mike, already, uh, I'm trying yeah, to. Yeah, I think this is covered. We can move on. Yes, you balanced that approach was very well said. And I think we're moving on to um, the structure of a good manuscript review by Paul. Yeah, yeah. Again, um, uh, a little bit self-serving here, but when when you are asked to to review a, a, a paper, you know there are two main, you know, regardless of the journal, there's the comments to the authors and there's the comments to the editors. And the comments to the authors, you know, especially for the trainees or those who haven't done very many, is there some sort of an outline that you can follow? So I think that the way that I approach it, and I think a good way to kind of structure it is in the comments to the authors. Briefly summarize the paper in one or two sentences, just to prove that a you read it and b you understood it. You know, next, say, you know, what's good about the paper? You know, is it a is it a hot topic? Is it a novel idea? You know, why why should the readership care about it? You know, what is the you know, what is the the core goodness or what what does this paper contribute? And then go into that list of the points that the author should address or correct. Um, uh, and this is really most of the review, you know, um, and it could just be a few minor points to, you know, 10 major things that the authors need to uh, address. And so kind of having that type of a pattern, something very, um, uh, you know, very reproducible and something that's very useful to the authors. And then if you go to the second, um, the mm -hmm. second uh, slide yeah. is the um, confidential comments to the editor. I'm trying to do that. Mm. They're confidential. Excellent. And you know, this is again from from an editor from an editor standpoint. Again, the, the the everything you type there is only going to the editors, so the authors are not going to be seeing this. And really, what's the purpose of this? Some people just copy copy and paste what they said to the authors in the confidential uh, comments of the editor, but here. I just want to emphasize this is this is an opportunity for you to have more of an informal kind of conversation with the editorial board. So you get to share your gestalt. You know, is this really is this a good paper? Is it a bad paper? Is it timely? You know, is this a diamond in the rough or, you know, are, are there fundamental problems? Um, you could be like, I really think this needs to be accepted, but the authors absolutely have to address, you know, points two and four. The others, you know, are taking to leave it. And so. This is, again, just really good feedback for the editors so that we don't have to just read between the lines of what you're saying in a very kind, um, you know, empathetic, in a very, uh, you know, empathy-laced way to the authors, as we have talked about, you know. But this can be very frank, you know. They, they tried really hard, but this is a, ter this is a train wreck. I, I don't see this being rescued. You don't have to tell that to the authors, but you should tell that if that's what your gut feeling is to the editors. Because, again... We want to we want to have an iron fist in a velvet glove, right? We want to be very gentle and kind, but we, we're not going to publish bad studies. We're not going to put bad things out into the world. And so, um, you know, we have to be gatekeepers. And so the confidential comments to the editor is a really useful um, tool that I think is very underutilized in most reviews uh, that I've seen. So, um, yeah. yeah, so those are the points that I wanted to share. Very good. Thank you so much for all you guys have done. And uh, I, for one, learned a lot. And I appreciated all the help that the last minute uh, push came to, to this.
Um, so I believe before we say goodbye to our audience, and I know that we went over, but there is a poll for the question that on a scale of one to five, how helpful was this session in improving your understanding and how to critique a paper? One being the least, five being the most helpful. And um, okay, that's, that's, that's nice. Very, very good. That's that made my day, I believe. And uh, I again thank thank everybody for their um, attendance and participation. And I will just um, say put a plug in for the March seventeenth. 2021 for another interactive e-journal presentation, learning psychology in times of pandemic. And that couldn't be timelier, I believe. Um, so hopefully to see everyone uh, uh, on uh, March 17th. And with that, uh, I think we can say goodbye and thanking again, everybody. Thank you all very much for doing this. This was a wonderful session and it's a nice kickoff to the e-journal. Uh, committee, uh, but it's also um, next week, don't forget, we have another session, we'll be talking about quality assurance issues. Till then, see you okay. all. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks everyone, it was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks. Very good. Thank you for listening to CytopathPod. You can reach ASC on Twitter at Cytopathology or via email at asc at cytopathology.org. Oh, 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 oh,